Josh. I'm Kristen. And this is episode 33. Yep. What are we talking about this week? We're talking about axe murderers. That is a scary one, to be honest. Really? Like... Yeah. Like, that's like a unlocked fear. Yeah, I think... I think axe murderer is probably the most lethal sounding yeah. murderer. Right. <laughs> like, it sounds... Really Other bad. than chainsaw murderer, chainsaw. Massacre. Oh yeah, chainsaws. They're scary too. Yeah. All you have to do is hear a chainsaw and it like triggers something in your brain. Well, it's kind of crazy how prevalent that being murdered with an axe is. I mean, you think of the movie The Shining. Also, yeah. the movie I murder. Uh, so I murdered an axe murderer <laughs> with I'm Mike Myers. Right. Yeah. And also, the real axe murders throughout history. Lizzie Borden. Yeah, I know. The Axe Murder House. Yeah. Uh, the Axe Man in New Orleans. Oh yeah, we I know some about that. So we're gonna on this episode we're gonna touch about all of that, right? We're gonna talk about all the axe murders and all the murders that happened in the early 1900s. Actually, it happened between a decade, really, from okay. 1909 to 1920 is what we're gonna talk. About. I'm excited to talk about it, even though it's really scary, kind of. <laughs> well. So kind of the twist on all this is there might be a group of serial killers that were all connected doing all these ex murders. That's creepy. It is creepy. I don't like to think about that. Yeah, because it might not have just been random people killing people with axes. Yeah. It might have been a, either a group or even maybe one person. Okay, well, I will say in defense of arguing against that, in the time frame that this was happening, an axe was a very common household item. This is true. This is very, very, very true. It wasn't like they had, like... I mean, I don't know. They still had guns and stuff, but... Well, not necessarily in the 19... I mean, I guess they did, maybe, like, rifles. Yeah. But... So that's the, my only argument against. But when I think but about, I'm excited to hear about the evidence towards it. Well, also like when I just think about like just an axe murder, like how brutal that is. Oh yeah, like that you're is like deranged. Deranged, violent. Yeah. I mean, you think about the scenes in The Shining. Yeah. When he's chasing them with an axe, like that for is sure. like some primitive violence. Yeah, for sure. Know? To chop someone up with an axe is deliberate. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's really... I mean, it's scary. I'm, like, no luck. Yeah. So, <laughs> this episode, definitely, uh, we're going to we're gonna get a little gruesome. Uh, some child murders, you know, some stuff like that is never fun to talk about. But it is part of history, so that's what kind of makes it interesting. Yeah, for sure. It really happens. Well, as always, you can hit us up at hauntedhazepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Haunted Haze Podcast. And you can find us on our Etsy shop, Pippi Hay Studios. We have all the tada. We have new... It's Look, it's getting to be fall. We're yep. going to do some hoodies, some sweatshirts. Yeah, like... Stuff like that. Yeah, tada isn't just a summer right. thing. Right. Yeah, it's Look. not just seasonal. For sure. So definitely check out our Hippie Haze. Also, we're doing like some cool paintings for like some horror themed things I'm working oh, on. Oh, right, yeah. As always, if you're interested in a horror themed kind of painting or art, hit me up. We can always collaborate. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's right up your alley. All right. Uh, so let's kind of talk about like something that's always intrigued me is just the, the, the theory of the axe murderer. Okay. So, like, we talked about earlier, like, we know, like, the ex-murders, the famous ex-murders in America, like Lizzie Borden, the Velisca House, the ex-murder of New Orleans, right? Yeah. And so we're kind of focusing on the years between 1909 and 1920. Okay, so, like, a little over a decade. Yeah, 11 years or so. So with all the stories that I'm going to kind of describe tonight, like, all of them have, like, logical similarities, okay. right? 
And I'm going to go over some of the similarities that they all kind of have. So, an axe was a murder weapon, obviously. One of the most effective and dangerous weapons that was readily available to any criminal, most households left an axe on the woodpile in the backyard. So, that's kind of like what I was saying. Right. Like, every house kind of had one back then. Uh, The victims were attacked at night at home. Oil lamps carried into rooms where the attacks took place. Nighttime is the least risky time to attack. Fewer witnesses, more shadows, and occupants likely asleep. Bringing an oil lamp into the room would be the only way to aim properly in the dark. Many victims were killed in the bed. There was little street lighting and most houses lit by oil lamps. It would have been easy to sit tight and wait until the house was completely dark before attacking. The axe could be wielded quietly. It was very common for multiple victims in each house to remain asleep during the attacks. Yeah, because you think, like, that's not very loud. You know, you hit someone right. hard enough with the axe once, it's While probably at least going to knock them yeah, out. Yeah, for sure. God. That's awful. Just thinking about thing. it just being dark and someone's just waiting for you to be asleep, dead Ooh. asleep. Man, this is probably going to give me nightmares. <laughs> Curtains or blinds were drawn. Many authors attribute the behavior to the killer. They fail to account for victims drawing the curtains before bed. So maybe it wasn't necessarily the killers that shut the blinds. It might have just, you know, been. Oh, like they just, like, naturally, like the family would be in habit of doing that. Right. So that night might not necessarily be a MO of the killer. Oh, okay. You know? I understand. They might just select people who often close their blinds at night. That's true, too. Uh, close relatives or neighbors are suspects. This still holds true today, but was even more susceptible to town gossip. Of, to town gossip when everyone knew each other. A hundred years ago, there was n- not much for police to go on if they hadn't caught someone red-handed. Starting with those known to the family was the logical place to begin. So some of the signature. Things that the the killer would left behind. That's kind of relative to all the stories that we're going to talk about. Uh, the first one is covering of mirrors. Hmm, that's interesting. So unlike the curtains, which could have been drawn by the victims, mirrors at some crime scenes were covered by clothing. This could indicate the same killer. Uh, covering the bodies, cases. Where the bodies were covered, but the bed sheets are closed. This shows that contrary to popular belief, it is not unique to killers who know their victim. Posing the bodies. This suggests that most strongly the killer was a stranger. The posing is part of a ritual, something that has been done on multiple occasions, not the result of a crime of passion, especially true of stacking the bodies on top of each other. Locking the doors. In some cases, the doors to the house were locked, The killer escaping via window. No evidence of robbery. This is a curious feature almost every single axe murderer and one of the creepiest. The killers were so focused on what they were doing, they rarely stopped to take even cash in open view. Seemingly they had no care except for killing. That's creepy. And they're like, I'm here to kill. I don't give a shit what you have. I just want to bash your head in and it'd be bloody as hell. Right, yeah. That's going to kill all of you. That's and awful. Then, I hate that. The fact that, that they could just be waiting for hours. Oh, yeah, that's even... That's the worst... That was my worst fear as a child. It's just someone's waiting? Yeah, I would... Like, house. sometimes I would be like, nobody left the house today. At every point today, somebody was home. And I would sleep way better on those days. Yeah, I understand Thinking, that. like, nobody could have come in the house say somebody was home all day. For real, right? I used to think that all the time. At the when I was a kid, I would have to talk myself into all kinds of stuff just to fall asleep. I know that was literally like one of my worst fears is like coming home and then someone that I don't know is here that wants to harm me. Oh right, you know, exactly. Like, what scarier fear is that? Like one, they're invading your privacy. Oh right. Two, you're in danger of death. Right. <laughs> it's terrible all around. All right, so the connection to all the crimes we're going to read. Suspicion of serial axe murders is not a new phenomenon. 
Even while these crimes were committed, press and investigators thought there was too many similarities to ignore. Alright, this is the story of Lovey Mitchell in St. Louis, Missouri. Inquiries made of the St. Louis police indicated that the arrest here of Lovey Mitchell was a result in reopening investigation in 30 murders committed since 1911. Identical in nearly every detail. The crimes were committed at night while victims lay asleep in their beds and all came to their death by means of blows from an axe. The warrant on which Mitchell was arrested charges him with murder of William E. Dawson, his wife and daughter, in Monmouth, Illinois, on the night of September 30, 1911. Wow. Communities in Missouri, Illinois, Iowa, Colorado, and Kansas have been terrorized since the first axe murders were committed in September 1911 in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where six persons were slain. In nearly every instance, the murder killed an entire family. Mitchell laughs at his arrest and says he will be able to clear himself. He made no objection to be taken back to Illinois to face the charge of murder. A list of the recent axe murders follows. 8C Wayne, wife and child, and Mrs. A.J. Burnham and two children in Colorado Springs, Colorado, September 1911. William E. Dawson, wife and daughter, in Mountmouth, Illinois, September 1911. William Showman, wife and three children, Ellisworth, Kansas, October 1911. J.B. Moore, four children and two girl guests in Villisca, Iowa, June 1912. Miss Mary J. Wilson and Miss George Moore, Columbia, Missouri, December 1912. Jacob Nilsson, his wife, and their daughter, and their daughter's infant, in Blue Island, Illinois, January 1914. So this Lovey Mitchell, these are all crimes that he's been suspected of uh, committing, and they're okay. all ex-murder crimes. Yeah, and they all happened almost exactly 110 years ago. Yeah, right, in 1911, that's crazy. So what I just read is a, a transcript from March 25th of 1915. Lovey Mitchell was arrested over the Dawson murders, and twice he was freed with insufficient evidence which couldn't be mustered against him. Racism was an unfortunate aspect to many false arrests. Police investigated several suspects in these cases which they believe were linked, including Henry Lee Moore, who we shall examine in more detail later. Even the man was eventually imprisoned, John Knight only served 12 years. So is this an uh, indication that the evidence was far from solid in the case? I mean, certainly the testimony of his wife should be taken in the knowledge that they were divorced twice. So, I mean, there's that. That's funny to me. So he he's our first suspect, is uh, Lovey Mitchell. I feel, so it sounds to me like they just, he was, that he's black and they were being racist. Right, and they kind and of... And pinning it against him. But, so all these ex murders had been happening, and that's... Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of like they just pinned it all on this one guy. Yeah. For, like, one instance. So I would... I'm saying he's not even on my radar list. All right, so that leads us to Clementine Barnadette... Is that a female? Hang on. Clementine Barnabette and the Church of Sacrifice. Okay. Of all the axe murders in this period, those of young Clementine and the murderous voodoo cult are the easiest to link. The press of the day covered the events in great detail, but the story of the axeman who terrorized black families of Texas and Louisiana was slowly forgotten over the decades. It is hard to pinpoint when they started exactly. Names and dates are not always consistent across newspapers. It is believed the first was a family of four in Rain, Louisiana in November of 1909. After a 14-month hiatus, four more events occurred in quick succession. Hmm. On the night of January 31st into the 1st of February 1911, the three members of the Byers family were killed in their beds in Crowley, Louisiana. The murder weapon was an axe, and although details are scarce, it sounds like the bodies were posed. Robbery was not a motive. 
A few weeks later, and a little to the east of Lafayette, four members of the Anders family were killed in their bed. They were bludgeoned with an axe. This time, the newspaper described the posing in detail. The dead husband and wife were positioned at the side of the bed as if they were praying. The children's broken bodies lay in front of them as if in an altar. Wow. The sheer brutality of this crime and the fact it was the third black family to be targeted within 14 months led to the first ripples of panic along the Southern Pacific Railroad towns. That's really sad. I mean, it sounds like it's very much race-fueled. Yeah, like they're targeting uh, specific people, right? Right. Rightly or wrongly, police concentrated their efforts on black suspects who would have no luck before the next murders. Alfred and Elizabeth Cassaway lived a hard life as a black man married to a white woman. They married in Mexico, but lived in San Antonio, where mixed marriages were illegal. At one point, they had to visit court, but were never charged. Eventually, they managed to settle down as a family with their three young children. Alfred found work at a local school and was missed immediately when he didn't show up on the 21st of March, 1911. When a family friend checked on the house, she received no response to knocking. Working her way around the side, she peeped through a gap in the curtains and saw Alfred laying dead on his bed. No. All five members of the family had been bludgeoned with the blunt side of an axe. When news of the members reached the ears of Sheriff of Lafayette, he finally began to suspect all four murders were linked. How horrible would it be to walk in on that? Really? I hope that Just never happens. Just and like yeah. bloody axe murder. Right. So only a few weeks later, the body count would nearly double. Ellen Moreau, seven of her eight children, and a lodger were killed in the same way as the Cassaways on the 27th of March, 1911. Officials from the areas flocked to the town of Glyden, Texas to compare notes. There was no consensus on whether crimes were linked. The fact that they're just willing to kill children like that. I know, I hate it. I know, that like is like a real lowdown. Yeah, it's like, wow, you're you're cool with killing the kids? Right. Over the next few months, many blacks were arrested for each of the crimes. In most cases, the matter never made it to trial. Eventually, police got lucky when the girlfriend of Raymond Barnabet reported that he admitted to killing the Andrews family. At his trial in October of 1911, his children Clementine and Zephyrin claimed to see him return home covered in blood on the night of that murder. Raymond Barnabet was convicted of the the Andrews murder and police could breathe easily again, but the case would not be that straightforward. One month after Raymond was in prison, Lafayette would be surprised by another family axe murder. Norbert Randall, his wife, three children, and nephew were all killed with an axe on the 29th of November in 1911. This time the killer, or killers, dismembered the children. Panic rose on the streets. Church meetings were held and people began sleeping with weapons at their beds. Lafayette Sheriff Louis Lacoste knew he had the right man in Raymond Barnabet, but it was now clear that he had not worked alone. Lacoste began to have doubts about the stories told by Raymond's children, Clementine and Zephyrin, and had them arrested. Police searched their homes, which were near to the Randalls, and found clothing of Clementine's covered in blood and brain matter. Mm. When confronted, not only did Clementine confess to the Randall murder, she admitted readily to the axe murders the police had linked by M.O. In the context of early 20th century America, the discovery that 17-year-old black girl was jointly responsible for a series of family axe murders was unbelievable. Chillingly, she claimed to be the leader of a voodoo cult, the Church of Sacrifice. They believed they were protected by voodoo doctors as they roamed the South collecting blood sacrifices. Mmm, hate that. The implication was that the murders would continue, even with her incarceration. All police could do was wait and see if she was telling the truth. Back in Crawley, Louisiana, the Warner family would be found dead on the 19th of January, 1912. Maurice Warner and her three children were murdered by axe, 
carried into a room and laid face down next to each other on a bed. Tracks in the backyard suggested multiple perpetrators. Less than two days later, the Church of Sacrifice would take things to a whole new level. In Lake Charles, Louisiana, Felix Brazard, his wife, and three children were killed in the usual way, bludgeoning by axe to the head. Blood was drained from the victims and left in buckets by the bodies. Splints were placed between the fingers of the children to force them into a splayed position, as if counting to five. Finally, the falling was scribbled on the front door. When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not to cry of the humble. Human five. I hate that. Yeah, cryptic and scary as that. For sure. As far as we know, the church's swan song would occur on the 12th of April, 1912. A maid visiting the house of the five-strong Burton family in San Antonio received no reply at the door. Looking through a window, she noticed the curtain was covered in blood and ran off to get help. Police had to force their way into the lock house, no doubt grimly aware of what they were going to find. In the main bedroom were William and Carrie Burton, dead from axe wounds to the head. Both also had knives sticking out of their backs. In the children's room, both kids had been bludgeoned around the head. Their uncle, Leon, was also found in their room, a knife blade broken in his back. So what happened to Clementine? It appears after the Burton murders, there is less clarity about which crimes may have been the work of the Church of Sacrifice. Clementine Barnabet herself confessed to 35 killings before her incarceration. Whatever the number is, fairly certain we have not discovered all of her victims. As for her accomplices in the church, no other person was ever caught after her arrest. Louisiana and Texas are left scarred and scared for a long time. Occasional home invasions and axe murders continue, but police are hesitant to leak them. They had begun to receive crank letters and seen more than one copycat killing. Doctors began to refuse visiting black households after dark, and many homes had someone awake all night to keep watch. It would be many months before life returned to normal. That's crazy. And what of Clementine herself? Although sentenced to life, one of America's worst female serial killers was released from prison in 1923. Subsequently, she disappeared from the pages of history. That's crazy. She loves like, all right, I'm out of prison. You don't want to hear from me no more. I do not want to be back here. Right. <laughs> so this leads us to the Axeman of New Orleans mm. from 1911 to 1919. Yes, I love this one. Five people would be murdered between 1911 and 1912 in New Orleans, concurrent with the activity of the Church of Sacrifice. So that means it was happening at the same time, right? Yeah. This was around 125 miles east of where they were active, so people were quick to suspect a connection. Any such thought would be dismissed by 1919 when surviving witnesses described the attacker as a white man in his 30s. That That sounds kind of right to me. That it was not the church of sacrifice. Well, just like a white man in his 30s. That sounds like the exact kind of person that would axe murder. A yeah, white that man doesn't in mean that he could have been involved with the churches, churches. No, I agree. Them. Yeah, I agree with They're that. They're kind of looking over that, right? Yeah. Maybe he was part of it. Both the early murders and later, both the early murders in 1911 and 1912, and the later set in 1917 and 1919, had much in common. The targets were always Italian shopkeepers. An entry was usually made by removing a wooden panel from the back door. Robbery was not a motive, and there were occasions where money or valuables had been left in plain view but ignored by the intruder. Wow. So linking the crimes, it was complicated by the social situation in New Orleans at the time. Some historians believe that the murders are not linked by a single serial killer. More likely, they were the result of organized crime hits over unpaid debts, extortion, or revenge. 
This is backed up by the fact that half the accident's victims survived. It could indicate that murder was not the ultimate goal. Conversely, other historians insist that the Mafia of the time, or similar black hand extortion gangs, would have targeted only the man of the house. Plus, it is likely that blackmail, extortion, or debt revenge would never have meant also robbing the victim in response. I mean, that makes sense. Like, if you're going to act murder and you're, like, murdering the whole family, kids and all. Yeah, it's not just over money, right? No, it's like, that's like a brutal hate crime. Yeah, it's going to be, like, way anger to it. Yeah. Like, this person just got off on all that. Right. So once we add all the possibilities of copycat crimes into the mix, it becomes very hard to discern fact from fiction in the series. Certainly, the Times McCune newspaper of New Orleans published an exclusive article asserting a serial killer. On the 13th of March in 1919, three days after one of the axe murders, the New Orleans Times McCune newspaper received a letter. Claiming to be from the serial killer known as the Axeman, he promised to kill just after midnight on the 19th of March. The catch was that he would avoid anyone playing jazz. As soon as the letter was published on the 16th of March, the city of New Orleans went into a frenzy of jazz-related social organizing. So some were highly dubious of the origin of the letter itself. Not only did it begin with the title Hell, an obvious reference to Jack the Ripper's From Hell letter, but it was written in the language of a well-educated person. Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal of New Orleans. They never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a fell demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come again and claim other victims. I alone know who they are and who they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with the blood and the brains of whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigation in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to amuse not only me, but his satanic majesty, Francis, Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such warning, for I feel sure the, pol- the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think me as some horrible murderer, which I am, (laughs) but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wish, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time, next Tuesday night, I'm going to visit New Orleans again. In my indefinite mercy, I'm going to make a proposition to you people. Here it is. I'm very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home has a jazz band in full swing at the time I have mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is some of those who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there will be any, will get the axe. (laughs) Jazz it. Better jazz it up. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and as it is about time that I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou will publish this, and that it may go well with thee. 
I have been and will be the worst spirit that has ever existed, either in fact or in the realm of fantasy. The Axeman. Wow. He's pretty intense, I think. Yeah, I mean, he definitely has, like, some kind of complex. <laughs> yeah. So, predictably, on the night of... Um, March 19th, every music hall in the city was full of people listening to jazz. People couldn't make it into the club's held parties. Uh, the X-Men did not attack on that night. Everyone was playing jazz. He loves it. That's hilarious. Partying. That's actually, uh, uh, well, at least we've heard, like, right? Yeah. Like, that's how New Orleans has gotten the nickname The Big Easy. Right. Is because every club in New Orleans, every place that could hold a band was looking for a band yeah. to play. So if you and were so a musician. Was, so it was an easy gig. It was yeah. the big easy gig. You can get a gig anywhere in the city. Right. For that for months during all this. Right. So actually like the axe murder being a thing drove up the entertainment. Of New Orleans. Of New Orleans. Yeah. Like, people didn't want to go sleep. Yeah. They were trying to... And if you've ever been to New Orleans, you know, like, that city doesn't sleep. So, yeah. The clubs are going until 6 a.m. Yeah, and the fact, like, clearly, like, the axe murder to me isn't someone that lives there. No, definitely not. Clearly, someone traveling to there as a destination. Absolutely. So, I don't know. It's just a little interesting tidbit. I do love that story, though, about how that's how it's the big big easy. Right. So as the decade came to close, there was speculation that the axe murder had moved on to pastures new. The New Orleans crime ceased, and there were only three similar murders to occur in the parts of Louisiana in 1920 and 1921. Police linked them to the axe man on M.O., but it is hard to verify. Yes, the killer left behind injured survivors in each case, and robbery was not the motive at any crime scene. However, given the sheer number of axe murders across the U.S., there's a good chance other killers were responsible. According to Myram Davis, the axe of New Orleans, the true story, there was a witness to the third mor- to the third murder. A 10-year-old girl got a good look at the man who killed her sleeping father with an axe. She described him as a short and black man. This would be at odds with multiple witnesses who had described the New Orleans Axeman as white. Given that the Axeman had never existed, it is likely many of these crimes were committed by different people. So I'm not sure which is the worst case scenario. Like, yeah. Was it just one man committing all these crimes that actually sent that letter? Or was it just the fact that people are crazy with each other and just killing each other with axes? I kind of like to think, because of, like, the location of where these murders were happening, this guy could have been, like, a Memphian. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, location-wise? Yeah. Like, it would be a good drive to, like, a bunch of different locations. Yeah. If he's, like, going out of town to axe murder. Well, I mean, that's interesting. That, That also gives you more, like, he must have a car. How many people had cars in this time? Or, you know, maybe it wasn't a car. Not, yeah, 1911. I don't know. There trains, really. Or, like, horse and buggy. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so another suspected uh, case of it being connected is in Colorado Springs on the 17th of September in 1911. So if there's one set of crimes that might point us to the another serial killer is the double event known as the Colorado Springs Axe Murders. Like so many other of these crimes, the discovery was made by someone calling on the Berkmans, on the Burnhams, after they had not been seen. Alice Burnham's sister, Nettie Ruth, and her friend, Anna Merritt, noticed the smell of death as they approached the house. Having a spare key to the back door, Nettie only got as far as the first bedroom. Inside, she saw blood splatter across the walls and a six-year-old Alice dead from terrible head wounds on the bed. The two women fled the house and sought the help of passers-by. Once police arrived, it was not long before someone remarked that the Wayne household next door was unusually quiet. Police forced their way in and found Henry, 
Blanche and their child dead in the same bed of a similar head wounds as the Burnhams. That's pretty weird. Yeah, right? So that's a coincidence, or was it not? The bloody axe was found propped up next to the back door. The act of killing two families in one night all but eliminates a crime of passion as the motive. The event qualifies simultaneously as a mass murder, spree killer, and serial killer from this one night alone. We can be fairly certain that this was not an inexperienced killer. This means we have a chance to link these crimes to the other earlier crimes. Right? Yeah. So it seems like this person knew what they were doing. Right. You know. So it makes sense. Like, they get out of New Orleans for a while, maybe. Right. Go to Colorado. Like, and then depending on what kind of transportation you have, that's going to take a good minute to get from New Orleans to Colorado. Here's the thing, too. Maybe they were involved with that church of sacrifice, and that church of sacrifice went defunct, and then they just kept, kept on. on doing yeah. it. Yeah. In their own little way. Like I can maybe, see that. You know I mean? Yeah. Maybe it's not even the same, quote-unquote, religion anymore, but right. it's their... You know, a similar Off belief. Offshoot or yeah, whatever. Exactly. So the weapon was an axe that the Waynes had borrowed from another neighbor and left in the back garden. The screen to the door was cut and the lock picked with wire. This confirms premeditation and almost certainly prior experience. The scene of the Burnham's window was also cut before the killer gained entry into their property. On entering through the Burnham's window, he knocked over some ink, which in turn led to fingerprints being left. So there's no, the police didn't say how the Waynes were killed first. Uh, it's suspected it's because there was no trace of ink in their house. Okay. Uh, this leaves us to one unusual behavior. The killer must have returned to the Wayne property after killing the Burnhams as the bloody axe was found propped against the Wayne's back door. So that's interesting. Yeah. I hate, you know, they're like, damn it, why did I borrow that axe? <laughs> yeah. So, and then we have the issue with the body covering and posing. It's fairly certain that the Burnham adults were covered with sheets. Nellie Burnham was found across her mother, and it is often said it looked like she had woken up and tried to escape. She had been stacked on top of her mother. At the other scene, it is inferred that the Waynes were covered, but also that the Blanche Wayne had been posed in a sexual way. Mm-hmm. Finally, I hate that. yeah, the, maybe she was raped or something. It's awful. And I'm sure they had no way of like really knowing. Yeah, that there's not like a rape kit back then. Finally, we have the possibility that they were an attempt to set fire to the Burnham house. This was after the killer had washed the ink and blood from his hands. Crumpled paper and a singed curtain were found, but for some reason, police thought it may be unrelated. So they're like, "Eh, maybe not." <laughs> he might try to burn it down, but eh, maybe not. not I wonder. It. I guess it just didn't like light. I get didn't ignite. Yeah. Like he didn't have like gasoline or whatever. I guess. All right. So next, this leads us to the Hood family. And Logan Turnpike, West Virginia, the 31st of October, 1909. This is Halloween, 1909. Okay. At around 11 p.m. on Halloween, George Jur and his friend returned to the Hood's apartment. They found it and the restaurant below engulfed in flames. The fire was too intense for anyone to enter, but there was hope that the rest of the family had survived and no one heard anyone scream or shout from inside. But the next morning, searching through the debris, which confirmed George Jern's worst fears, Roy, Sarah, and Emma were found stacked on top of each other. Where Roy had been shot in the head, and all three had suffered axe wounds. I hate that, that like, the stacking on top of each other, that's just, like, so gross. Yeah, it's, it's a weird, like, yeah. maybe, like, ritual thing, maybe. The females were too burnt to discern a cause of death. George Sr. was found in the back room. His head had been crushed by a blunt end of an axe, and his throat had been cut. So the Dawson family in Mountmouth, Illinois, the 30th of September, 1911. On the morning of October 1st, 1911, 
the first Presbyterian church stood stood locked up with a confused reverend waiting outside. The reliable janitor, William Dawson, had not showed up for work nor opened up the church. Two members of the church went over to the Dawson house to see what could be the matter. After knocking at the door for a while and receiving no answer, they went around back and found the back door unlocked. Inside, young Georgia Dawson, 13, who was dead in her bed, bludgeoned and covered with bedclothes. William and his wife, Charity, were likewise found in their bedroom. As usual, the murders attracted a big crowd, and once word got around town, there was many people that showed up to the house. One aspect of this crime that differs from the others is the murder weapon. Usually in these cases, the killer or killers left the axe behind, but no axe was found in Mountmouth. Wow. That's weird. That's suspicious. <laughs> That's strange. <laughs> Police bloodhounds followed the killer's scent through the back fence of the property and towards a pond. On the ground of the pond, a metal gas pipe lay covered in human blood and hair. Fingerprints were also found. Mm. A few months after the bloodhounds retraced the killer's footsteps away from the house, a clue was found. Someone found a flashlight next to the point in the fence that the killer exited through. There was an engraving on the flashlight, and whilst descriptions vary, it seems likely that it include the words Colorado Springs. <laughs> so How that, horrible, though. Well, that just is another connection, you know, from, you know, I mean, like, from Colorado Springs. Yeah, I mean, Springs like, the timeline works. Illinois. Now, right. next, we're uh, the Showman family in Ellsworth, Kansas, the 15th of October, 1911. By now, the story is all too familiar. Friends of the Showman family became concerned when they weren't answering their phone on a Monday morning. When the Showman's dog turned up at the friend's house, that was a step too far. On visiting the tiny two-room house, they found the front door locked. Inside, William and Pauline Showman were dead in one bed alongside their baby. Their two other children were dead in another bed in the same room. A feature of this crime is the amount of overkill, with the heads of the victims bashed into a pulp. Mm. It appears from descriptions that Pauline Showman was also posed or assaulted after death, like sexually. A suspect, Charles Marzik, was hunted down and caught. He stood trial for the crime, represented himself, and walked away a free man. There was never any evidence to tie him to the scene, except for one witness who thought they saw him in the bad lighting at 4 a.m. on Ellsworth Street. That's messed up. Well, maybe not. I mean, they saw him at the time. The fact that he represented himself is a ballsy move. So again, in Kansas, the Hudson family, Paola, Kansas, 5th of June, 1912. If one man was was responsible for these crimes, he waited another eight months before striking again. Yeah, maybe he felt like the police were hot on his tail or something. Yeah, you know, I don't know, maybe it was stuck in Kansas. It seems to be happening in Kansas again. Yeah. Anna and Roland Hudson, like so many others, were killed in their beds, but nothing stolen from their home. A curious feature of this particular case, however, is that there is a contrary evidence pointing both towards a targeted crime or a random act. A curious feature of this particular case, however, is that there is a contrary evidence pointing both towards a targeted crime and or a random act. The killer had entered via window, from which he had removed a screen beforehand. This is familiar behavior at the Colorado Springs murder. The murder weapon was never found, and was suspected to be either a mason's hammer or a pickaxe. Ew. So this is similar to the Dawson killings, where there was a gas pipe used but was removed and discarded near a pond. No bloodhounds were used in the Hudson case uh, that could have followed an escape route and possibly led to the weapon, as happened in the Monmouth case. Finally, the killer covered the victims, but the difference here was that they were covered before being bludgeoned. As police investigated, it appeared that the married couple may have been targeted. 
A stranger had arrived in town and inquired about the Hudsons at various stores. On the night of the murders, a neighbor saw the man on the front porch of their house at around 9 p.m. He was let inside, and that was the last anyone saw of him. He was never tracked down. But if he was the killer, why did he leave the house and re-enter via window? Or was that the setup as a false lead? Yeah. Another strange incident occurred on the night in Paola, one which suggests the Hudsons were targeted randomly. A family reported hearing the chimney of their kitchen lamp fall to the floor. Upon investigating, they saw a man leave the house. Creepy. The screen had been removed from the window in that room. This had to be the killer of the Hudsons, but was it the same man seen on the porch? So this... Now we're at the Moore family and the Sillinger girls at the Velisca house in Iowa, June 10th, 1912. At a tally of eight victims, it is certainly the highest body count outside the church's sacrifice murders. There is also the tragic coincidence of the Stillinger girls staying the night by a cruel twist of fate, which adds to an extra human element to the story. Yeah, for sure. That is so scary. It's like, yeah, they just asked to spend the night. Right. You know. A mere five days after the Hudson murders, six members of the Moore family would spend their Sunday evening at church. The children were Herman, 11, Mary, 10, Arthur, 7, and Paul, 5 would invite their friends Lena and Ina Mae Stillinger, 12 and 8 respectively, to spend the night. Josiah and Sarah Moore would herd the six children back to their home at around 9.30 p.m. The pathologist calculated that they must have been asleep by midnight, judging by the time of death. At some point between 12 a.m. and 5 a.m., someone simply walked through an unopened back door and picked up Josiah's axe. He headed straight to the adults' room and killed them first. Josiah being the greatest threat, he was attacked the most. His head was crushed so much that his eyes were obliterated. It appeared that the killer had used the blade of the axe on him, reverting to the blunt end for the other victims. But none would be spared overkill. The Undertaker referred to Sarah Moore's head as being the least pulpy, giving you the idea of the condition they were found. That's awful. Yeah. Especially when you think about the kids. Yeah. Once he was sure the adults were dead, he went to the room to room upstairs and killed the Moore children in similar fashion. He then headed back down to deal with the two Stillinger girls. After bludgeoning the Stillinger children, it appeared that the killer moved Lena so that her naked body was on display. Possibly the strangest act was to remove a slab of bacon from the icebox. The only reason police could think of, both then and now, is that there must have been some sexual element to the act. Yeah, that's really weird. Finally, the killer draped clothes over all the victims' heads, and also the mirrors in the house. He left the axe in the home, locking all the doors and escaping through a window. Later, bloodhounds would follow his scent to the the Nottaway River, 500 meters to the east. Was this similar behavior to the Dawson crime scene? Where the killer also made for a body of water? Did he know this would prevent further tracking? Right. So it seems like maybe the killer possibly would have knowledge that police would know, like how to track your person. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, it makes a lot of sense. A lot of the, I mean, it's leading to seem like maybe like one person is responsible. Yeah, and honestly, the timeline and like the little map, I've been kind of trying to keep up with it in my head and it makes sense. They're all, like where he goes next. Yeah, close vicinity right. places. Yeah. Like, so the case for a serial killer. Whilst there, whilst there is a high chance that at least one of the axe murders in this period was committed in a fit of rage or jealous rage, we can learn a lot from the Clementine, Barnabet, and the Axemen of New Orleans. The Church of Sacrifice proved that the area was ripe for gangs to commit multiple horrific murders of this kind. Likewise, the Axeman of New Orleans, if he existed, confirms that a single man could also do the same. Yeah. The way these crimes tell off in the 1920s also points to the death or otherwise annulment of a few significant players. 
So was there something in the water at this time? I don't think so. I mean, I think it was just like they had access to axes. You know, like people get killed in fits of rage all the time. It's just like now we do it a lot of times with guns. Oh, that's true. So we cannot escape the fact that due to massive number of crimes, it is unrealistic to believe that such a high percentage of the population were killing to dispatch their social enemies in such a cruel and violent way. Yeah. Not only that, all of them got away with it. That's all true. these murders, someone got away with it. Yeah, that's the craziest part, really. Really, it is. It's like no one really ever... But like, back then, it just wasn't really that easy to solve a crime. You so had like, to do it the old-fashioned way. So, I mean, there's definitely a chance of that. Like, people were just getting pissed off at each other and killing each other with, like, the closest, you know, with an act, right? Yeah, because it's, like, right there. Yeah. But the fact that there might have been a crazy man that was just going through yeah, people's houses... Yeah, that's horrible to think of. Killing people... So, in 1913, the trial of Henry Lee Moore, which is no relation to the the Velisca Moore family, gained wide publicity. On the 17th of December in 1912, he snuck into his mother's home in Columbia, Missouri, crept up behind her, and bludgeoned her to death with an axe. Mm. Once she was dead, he found his grandmother, Mary Wilson, asleep on her bed. She was killed the same way. Returning to a nearby rented hotel room, he washed the blood from his clothes and arms and waited for the next day to dawn. Thinking he was fooling police, he returned to his mother's home the following day and pretended to find the bodies. Mm, Of course. Having forgotten to clear up the blood-stained mess in his hotel room, his story soon unraveled and he was arrested for the two murders. Oh, I forgot to clean up where I killed him. Right. Department of Justice Special Agent M.W. McClory listened to Moore's trial and statements with growing interest. A fingerprint expert called into Velisca after the murders. There, he developed a fascination with the possibility that Henry Lee Moore was the culprit in multiple cases. McClory's theory included Colorado Springs, Dawson, Showman, Hudson, Velisca, and the Moore's grandmother and mother. It gained enough traction to lead many websites and books to this day to consider Henry Lee Moore a serial killer with a double-digit body count, where there are multiple problems with him as a suspect. It can be argued that the Columbia murders have less in common than all the other murders we've talked about. No covering of the victims, no posing of bodies, and the use of a hotel as a base. Moore had also had the incentive of an inherited house to, to drive him to commit this particular crime. Fingerprints were definitely found at the Burnham and Dawson homes, which, which would have been preserved at the time of Moore's incarceration. So surely his fingerprints would have been checked against those by a special agent or the Department of Justice, right? Yeah. So the Wilkerson theory. The Burns Detective Agency sent an undercover agent to Velisca in a hope that the loose tongues might spill the beans on likely suspects. Detective James Wilkerson ended up developing a theory involving the local Iowa State Senator Frank Jones and suspected hired killer William Mansfield. Mm. Hired killer. There was one tentative reason to suspect Mansfield. On the 6th of July, 1914, in Blue Island, Illinois, his ex-wife, her parents, and child were killed by axe in their home. Covers were pulled over the victims, and the axe was left at the scene. So, immediately, that is some coincidence. Yeah. But it does appear to be just that. Another man was found guilty of those murders, but that is just one of the problems with Mansfield as a contrary roaming serial killer. So fingerprints were found on the axe at the Blue Island crime scene, and we can safely assume they did not belong to William Mansfield. Why is that? Because by 1916, Wilkerson managed to get a hearing in front of the grand jury to decide either Senator Jones or Williams Mansfield should stand trial for Velisca. Therefore, it is very unlikely that fingerprints were not taken from Mansfield to check against all the axe murders. The same jury also saw evidence that placed Mansfield in Illinois the night of the Velisca murders. 
So we can completely discount him for, for two of the crimes he is most associated with. <laughs> well. So, there's definitely a case for one or more serial killers in this period of history, right? Right, I agree. And so why did they stop? You know, was it the sudden availability of maybe guns became available? And yeah. Why use like, an axe when you can use a gun? Maybe, like, just also, like, better police work and, That's like, true. fingerprint did, evidence. And, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, did people start just locking their doors more often? Right. Or did one or two of those serial killers just die off and their trail destruction just never be matched since? Right. Like, maybe they just got old, you know, and faded away. It could have happened. Yeah, it definitely could have happened. And, and just the idea to me, like, the church is sacrificed. Like, maybe, like, they were involved with all that. Yeah. Killing people. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that that's too far-fetched. You know, we didn't we didn't really dig into that, but there was a bunch of murders, like, not just axe murder-related, uh, like, fires and uh, stabbings that yeah. the church is sacrificed that was involved in. We just kind of focused on the fact of axe murder. So, you know... Think of it as, like, maybe that was, like, a division. Like, y'all do the axe murders. Yeah. Yeah. And then when the ringleader girl got arrested, you know, what else am I going to do? Yeah, for sure. Start killing people in New Orleans. (laughs) So that's that's really terrifying to me, the the fact that it could be, like, a cult thing. Yeah, because then it's just, like, way more organized. And then, really, it points to me that, that in a lot of the cases, the victims were covered up. Or they were posed in certain ways. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, like, how much of that was documented in, like, news articles and stuff like that. And, like, was it copycats? Well, they did say at some point they suspected some copycats. Yeah. But uh, in some of the the ones that we went over, uh, specifically, like, each of those crimes that we went over, those, those ones specifically were very, very similar. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I... I really have never thought that maybe they were all connected to each other. Well, it makes sense, too, because, you know, I mean, they kept getting away with it. Yeah. You know, no one really knows who did this. For sure. Like, the accident. We just know these were actual crimes. Right. You know, I've always been fascinated with the Valeska axe murder, and especially the axe murder in New Orleans, just to think that those two were related somehow. It might have been the same person yeah. doing it. Yeah, that's a theory that I don't know. I don't know how popular that is, you know. And I think it's been really interesting to hear about it. Also, clearly, like it seems like this person had experience. Like a lot of times, it just didn't seem like this was their first time doing this. Right. So, it's pretty scary to think about that. It really is. That person might have just died of old age, or yeah. you know, it's very possible. Just Kind of same with, like, the Zodiac Killer. Right. He could have just died of old age. He could still be alive. You know, obscurity. Yeah. It's crazy, like, how many killers are out there and how many... I mean, the Golden State Killer almost got away with it. Yeah. Wow. But even, like, Jack the Ripper and things like that. Oh, yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. That's crazy to think, like... He just was really good at what he did. I I guess you could look at it like that. (laughs) But just how brutal is that to, like... Kill a, a child with an axe. Yeah, that's really messed up. Especially like while they're. Sleeping. That's what's so messed up about all these killings is yeah. the children. And then, not that it's not messed up to murder somebody with an axe, but you know what I mean. Remember when we watched uh, Ghost Adventures and they were in uh, the Velisca house and they uh, allegedly got that EVP and it was like they don't walk in heaven yet. Oh yes, that was, was like, creepy. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's some creepy that stuff. That was a good one. I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, that's a good episode, actually. I love so. Ghost Adventures. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but... Yeah, so what do you think? Like, uh, anyone listening, have you heard of this? Like, do you have other evidence that maybe could point to there just being a singular axe murder, serial killer going around the country yeah. during that time? There's been a lot of... You know, the fact that there were so many people killed with an axe at that time Time, yeah, it's really kind of like telling in a lot of ways. I agree because of all the people killed nowadays with gun crime. Yeah, it's like wow, we like people have just always had a problem with wanting to kill each other. For sure, it's natural. Yeah, it's like they're gonna find a way. Like oh yeah, being an axe, a gun, a knife. Yeah, you know, it is gonna happen. Something else. Yeah, you know. your bare hands. Yeah, whatever. Like people are crazy and want yeah. to kill people. Yeah. 
It's not everybody, but yeah, some. Well, you want to talk about some other monsters? Yeah. Some monsters that we keep locked away in the super duper secret box? I sure do. You know what that means. It's time for verses. It is time for verses. And as always, we take one scary thing and we put it up against another scary thing and we decide which one we think is scarier. Yes, let's see. What shall it be? Ooh. What should it be? <laughs> a foot grab versus death from above. Does that mean like a, a somebody pulling at your foot? Or like waking up and there's someone right above you? Okay, yeah. So like What's scary, like someone like tugging on your foot while you're sleeping at night, or like opening your eyes and there being something Ew. or someone standing right above you? Gosh, I don't know which one's scarier. One, you're physically being touched. Yeah. Two, you're visually seeing something. Yeah. But sometimes I guess you can close your eyes and maybe they're not there anymore, or the thing, or whatever. But if you have uh, something in your house that's strong enough to pull your body weight mm. and yank you. Yeah, that's pretty that's, scary. I think that that's startling. That's scary. Yeah, like, I think I'm going with the foot pull. Foot pull is scarier. Mm, I, I, I kind of agree, but also, like, visually seeing something. Yeah. Especially if it's menacing and it seems to want harm against me. For sure. Yeah, just the death from above, like, oh, you're going to kill me? Wow. Yeah, that's pretty awful. So, which one are you going to go with? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess I agree with you a little bit, too. Like, I mean, something that actually has the physical power to pull on you Yeah. It could hurt you. Yeah. So that's actually what's scarier, if I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, I think maybe, like, the... The foot pull is the scarier. So (laughs) make sure you keep those feet covered at night. Oh, I do. See? I can't sleep with my feet out. Can you really not? No. I used to not when I was younger, like a kid and stuff. Yeah. But it doesn't bother me now. Yeah, it doesn't bother me at all now. Yeah, I always have my feet covered at night. Yeah. It doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't bother me. At least with the sheet. But I guess I sometimes think that. Like if I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm a little scared, I definitely try, like, tucking the covers a little bit better. Yeah, for sure. Which I what what are the covers? Are the are the covers like some magical thing that keep you from the boogeyman? Uh, I don't know what it is about them, but they do make you feel much more safe. Yeah, they make you feel like oh, okay, nothing. nothing yeah, nothing can now. penetrate my, my blanket. Yeah, my my, my, <laughs> under my, my you know, shield quarter inch blanket. Yeah, <laughs> I'm good now. That's funny. Well, anyway, what do you think? Yeah, what do you think? Which one do you think is scarier? Do you think maybe seeing a menacing figure hovering above well, you as also, you wake up is scarier? Well, also, I sleep on my stomach, so, like, if they were above me, I would have to, like, turn around. You know, they'd be, like, <laughs> looking at the back of my head. Well, that might be even worse. <laughs> or do you think something grabbing you in the middle of the night is scarier? We're going to go with that one, honestly, but we would love to hear from you. As always, you can hit us up at Haunted Haze Podcast on gmail.com. Yeah, or Facebook and Instagram at Haunted Haze Podcast. Yeah, and if you would like to support the podcast, you can always hit up Hippie Haze Studio. Yep, on Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you're needing a caffeine fix, make sure that you try our Devil's Divine Coffee from Griffith Roasting Company. Yep, you can find them on Facebook and Instagram at Griffith Roasting Company. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah, it's definitely keeping us caffeinated so we can keep up with these episodes. Yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody, who's been listening. Again, like, we will always say thank you to that. Oh, yeah, for thank sure. Thank you for taking the time to do this. It's amazing. Uh, we'll be back soon with more episodes. We're going to bring... Uh, trivia back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm going to kick your ass again. Yeah, probably. <laughs> we got a new horror trivia. So. Yeah, but this time we got the Trivial Pursuit trivia. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. Although I'm afraid it's going to be harder. Yeah, but that might be a good thing. For me? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Hey, everyone out there, watch out for those axe men. Oh, yeah, for sure. They might be coming to get you. Well... Until Until next time. time. Peace out. Peace out. Stay haunted.